Well, if, uh, if you're just joining us for the semester, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Brent Corbin. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Um, we want to be a group and a place where you can come uh, wherever you are uh, along the spectrum from, uh, from doubts to belief. And we hope that you uh, feel welcome here at RUF. We hope that um, as you see the songs that uh, Christians sing, as you uh, listen to a message from the Bible, that you would see something and begin to uh, be able to process what it would look like uh, to be a Christian, what Christians talk about, what the gospel is, the core message of the Bible. And so we hope that, uh, that you keep coming back. We're certainly glad that you're here. Um, if you are just joining us, or maybe if you've been here, I want to catch us up to speed, because what happens tonight in this passage kind of marks a bit of a turning point uh, in uh, Mark's gospel. So for the last uh, five chapters of his, uh, the book, the gospel of Mark, um, we saw Mark introduce Jesus uh, in his earthly ministry. He didn't do any of the background. He didn't talk about Jesus' birth or the Immaculate Conception or any of that. He starts right out with Jesus' public ministry. And over the last several weeks, we've seen that that public ministry included uh, teaching, Said that that's, uh, Jesus himself said, that's why I came out, is to teach. Is that really loud? Man, that feels really loud to me. I'm going to turn it down just a sec. Yeah, there it is. Um, Jesus said that I came out to teach, and that was one of the main things about it. Uh, but he also accompanied his teaching with healings and with miracles. And we saw him uh, heal uh, a blind man. We saw him raise a paralytic, cleanse a leper, and all of these things. But what has happened along with his, uh, his teaching and his miracles is that his fame is spreading and the crowds are growing around him. And along with that growth and that increase in, in following comes this increase in opposition. And tonight we're going to read a little bit of a longer passage um, and so we're not going to be able to talk about it in as much detail as we normally do. But what I want us to see is that we, we get three different views of the kind of rejection that Jesus and his followers faced. And as we consider what that means for us, I want us to be thinking about this. Why is it that I am so terrified of others' rejection of me? Okay, that's what was happening to them and for us. What is it about others rejecting or accepting me that just has me, ooh, it has us in stitches. So let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, 
no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not, uh, and they will not listen to you, you or when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick, and he healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Sin is the reading of God's Word. Let me pray for us real quick before we look at it together. Father in heaven, uh, I confess that uh, this passage, this story, the idea about being rejected, whenever I'm faced with my own worship of what people think about me and their approval of me, uh, it's hard. And I know that I'm not alone here tonight. I know there are many in this room who functionally live enslaved to wondering what the people around them think about them. I pray that tonight, through this passage, by your Spirit, that you would grant us freedom from that bondage. And I pray that we would find in Jesus and His good news the acceptance and the love that our souls so deeply crave. We pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story real quick about uh, Jenna. Um, Jenna was a real student here at TU, but I changed her name, so no need in thinking about who she is. Uh, Jenna and I sat down at the end of her junior year. This was a few years back. 
And as we sat down, we kind of had the pleasantries and talked about life and talked about her sorority and talked about, you know, just kind of caught up, small talk. It wasn't too long into the conversation when I began to ask Jenna more substantial questions. You know, how are you doing? How are your relationships? Do you feel like you have friends who care about you? Um, How are you feeling about your major and what you've decided to study and pursue? And as we began to get into that kind of second level and layer of questions, Jenna began to tear up. And what she began to to share to me that day in the library was this overwhelming fear and paralysis of what would happen if people found out the real Jenna. If people really found out who she was. And she shared about how functionally her life in college had been one series after another of creating this image that people thought Jenna was and she would project herself um, upon people. This, this good Jenna, the together Jenna, the capable Jenna. But she knew in the bottom of her heart, in the back of her mind, that that was all a facade. And what she shared with me that day is what I am hearing again and again and again and again from those of you at this school, from me and my own heart, from my friends, is that for most of us on a day-to-day basis, we live our lives for the approval of the people around us. Now, we're, we're a bit more cunning than that, and so we're not going to exactly say it that way. But most of us would acknowledge that to some degree or perhaps to a great degree that our lives are functionally crafted by us so that people will see us in a certain light. And we do almost everything in our power to make sure that people don't get to know the real me that lays my head down on a pillow at the end of the day and has to deal with all of the treachery of my own heart. We are enslaved to what others think about us. The Bible would call this idolatry. That no, we're not you know, bowing down to a little statue made of gold or wood or whatever, but functionally we are bowing down to what people think about us because for most of us it is the overriding concern of our lives. It is what we have decided matters above everything. And so functionally, we worship it. And where that has most of us is in a place of tremendous anxiety and fear of being found out. And you live your lives, you go around wondering if anyone will ever find out the real you. And you're terrified of that. But here's the thing. The flip side of that is that you are lonely. You are lonely because when your whole life is spent projecting this image of who you want to be out on other people, people don't actually get to know the real you. And so you walk through life thinking that you don't have any friends, that you don't have anyone who knows you at the depths and loves you in that place. And tonight we're going to look at three different kinds of rejection. And what I want to suggest... What I want to suggest is that that 
that that deep desire and longing that every single one of you has to be loved and accepted for who you are will only and can only be met by Jesus. And to the degree that you move out into the world trying to get that deep need met from the people around you is to the degree that you will be anxious and lonely and miserable. Don't believe me? Let's see. The first passage that we look at, and the first little chunk of this, we see that Jesus himself was rejected by those closest to him. He was rejected by those in here, his, his close circle of family and friends in his hometown. In verses 1 through 6, we read that Jesus goes to Nazareth, which is his hometown. Several years back, after I had left my prolific career in banking after one year, um, I went back to my hometown to the golf course where I grew up playing, and I was about to begin this two-year internship with this campus ministry I'd gotten involved with in college called RUF. And as I stood on the putting green waiting to play, I talked to uh, a friend of mine named EJ. EJ was about a 55-year-old lawyer in Duncan. And he had seen me grow up for most of my life. And, you know, we were just catching up. And he said, well, what are you doing these days? I said, well, I'm actually about to go into full-time ministry. And he said, huh, well, that will be a good experience for you. Conversation over. Jesus shows up at his hometown in verses 1 through 6 there. You can look down at the passage in front of you. And he basically gets that kind of reception. He goes doing what he did. He enters the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, teaching and interpreting their scriptures and saying, look, everything that's written in there points to me. And that's what, we, that's what he would have been claiming. That's what he would have been saying. And so the people around him look up and they're just like, what? You're Mary's son. You're... You're the guy who built my table. You're saying that our whole Jewish religion and framework and scriptures are about you? And it says that they ridiculed him. And they, were, they took offense at him. And Jesus responds, they're saying, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. The little section ends with Jesus marveling at their unbelief and their rejection of him. What is it like to be rejected by those closest to you for the sake of the gospel? What would that look like? Some of you, it's not an imaginary thing. It's not a hypothetical thing. It's a real thing. That you uh, perhaps have come to college and have begun to explore what following Jesus might look like. Or some of you have actually begun that. Some of you have been doing it for a long time. And there will be times when you go back home and you're around your old high school friends. Or perhaps you go back home to your family. And if you have begun to follow Jesus and He has come into you and His Spirit is indwelling you, you have changed. Fundamentally, you have changed and you are changing. And so your friends will look at you and say, man, what's the deal? Like, you're not any fun anymore. You know, we used to go out and we used to go, you know, stay up till four being crazy. But now all you want to do is sit around the house and like, you know, play board games because that's what Christians do. Um, 
Let's make fun of ourselves for a minute. You know, like, you're not any fun anymore. Or come on, let's go over here. These girls are over at this house. Let's go over there. Man, as my friend Noah Roberts would say, I'm not about that life. It's not how I am anymore. Perhaps you go home to your family and your mom and your dad, they're not believers. And here you are embracing this new worldview and this new way of thinking about life and everything. And they don't understand you anymore. There's, there's a fundamental disconnect in how you relate to them. What is that like? Jesus experienced it here in this passage. He experienced the rejection. Why is it so hard to experience the rejection and the disapproval and the disappointment from those who are closest to us? It's because those are the people who who know us the best and who we want to love us the most. Some of you are living your lives out of this this place of never having been told, you never having been told that your father or your mother is proud of you. And you have set out into college to prove to them that you are worthy of their, of their praise, that you are someone they can be proud of. And so you are giving yourself over to every kind of activity on this campus. You are slaving away to get the grades. You are doing everything and you are exhausted because you are waiting for the approval of your parents, which may or may not ever come. And I would suggest that to the, for those people to whom we look for that kind of deep approval and acceptance, to the degree that they reject us, will be all the greater in its amount of pain. Jesus himself knows what that feels like. That the very Lord who would later lay down his life for his, uh, for his family, for his followers, and for us, the very Lord who was rejected in total by God on the cross knows acutely what it's like to be rejected by those closest to him. He was rejected by his heavenly Father. Jesus knows that kind of rejection. He knows that kind of disappointment from the people around him. So how does the message of the gospel help us in this place? What the gospel offers you is home. It offers you home. Some of us uh, go back home from time to time during the semester. <clears throat> when I was in college, I went often because it was an hour away and I could still play golf on my parents' membership. I used them. Um, but I would go home, and the beautiful thing about going home and the thing you love about going home is that when you walk home, if you have a family that has loved you, is that when you walk home, you get to put your sweatpants on, you can take your makeup off, and you can be you. You can stop being the thing that you are here on campus. The person you try to project onto other people. And you love that about home. You love the comfort of knowing that you are accepted and you are loved because of who you are. 
And when you get in your car, you get on that plane, you fly back to Tulsa. As you approach campus, your anxiety rises because you know you're about to enter back into a world where you are terrified that people will ever know that you. And you're terrified of their rejection. And what Jesus offers you in the gospel is home. He's offering you the deep affection and love and acceptance that you may or may not have from your parents, but He is offering it to you and saying, I can give you that. I can satisfy you at the deepest level of your heart. I am the satisfaction to your deepest longings. Jesus was rejected by those who were in here. Secondly, we see in, this, uh, in these verses that some of Jesus' followers, his disciples, the twelve, right, the rock stars, like these are the people that Jesus handpicked to be the foundation of the church. And here he is in verses 7 through 13, and he's equipping them and he's giving their, them their marching orders and he's sending them out to spread the good news of the kingdom of God, that there is hope and there is life and there is joy to be found in Jesus And look what he says right there. He tells them, hey, like, don't take a lot of possessions. It's not going to be about that. Just take, you know, one rod, one pair of sandals. Don't take two tunics. Dress lightly. Oh, and by the way, when you go out there, they're going to reject you. When you go call people to repentance, which that word gets a bad rap, all it means is, it literally means turn around. That it means telling people who are walking into their own destruction to turn around and walk into life that is offered in Jesus. He's saying, so when you go to people and you offer them life and you call them to turn around, they are going to reject you. And he tells them what to do when that happens. Um, We need to talk about this, actually, because uh, the shake shake the dust off your feet, I think, has been... uh, misunderstood, maybe uh, maybe you felt it, maybe it's happened to you. What that means, that was a Jewish phrase that was used, um, and the way that it was used was uh, the Gentiles were the people outside of God's kind of covenant family. God had called the Jewish nation together, and they, he said, you will be my people and I will be your God, and the Gentiles were everybody else around them. And the Jewish people uh, in their law... They declared that the Gentiles were unclean. And so whenever Jewish people would go walk around, physically walk around in these Gentile lands, before they could come back into Jerusalem, they would literally shake off their feet, shake the dust off their feet so that they wouldn't bring that uncleanliness back into the clean place. So we wouldn't be contaminated. And what's being said here and what Jesus is getting across is he's saying, look, you will be rejected. And when you are rejected, leave the house and symbolically shake the dust off your feet. And their rejection of you is telling of what will come to them. They have rejected me. He redefines cleanliness and uncleanliness. He's saying that is no longer geographical. That is spiritually positional. People who come into his family are declared clean. And people who don't are outside. It is a prophecy about judgment. 
that God does judge those who don't follow Him. He judges justly. That He does judge. And here's the important note that I think we have to understand about this. This does not... This, this kind of like, go out and do it in haste, and if they don't accept you, then you know, kick the dust out of your feet and move on. This does not advocate blitz, blitzkrieg evangelism in our day. This is not a one-to-one correlation from them to us, and here's why. Jesus sends them out in haste because He had an appointment with death. That He was sent on a very specific mission from God to go out and accomplish salvation, and the clock is ticking. And Jesus is saying, if they, don't, if they don't accept you, then move on because the kingdom of God is at hand. And the, we already saw the ball started to roll when a few chapters ago the Pharisees get together with the Herodians and they begin to plot Jesus' death. It's already in motion. And Jesus is saying, get out there, take this as far as you can, as fast as you can. And that is a different calling than what Christians receive today. That was a very specific point in time that has the urgency that they, felt, that they felt and they were given by Him. It does not mean that you go out and do evangelism and tell people about Jesus as fast as you can and you don't take the time to get to know them and you just move on if they reject you and you're never friends again. It doesn't mean that. The larger scope of what the Bible calls people to is loving your neighbor, is loving your enemy even, being patient with those. And walking with them. Now some of us hear that and we take a great license with that. And we give ourselves excuse to never actually hear the the message that we should hear from this passage. That there is an urgency to get the message of the gospel out. Yes, it's to be done with love and care. and, And oh yes, please. But friends... Every single person in this world will die. And every single person in this world, if you are a Christian, this is what you believe. Every single person around you will face God and will be liable to His judgment. Uh, Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette is a famous atheist. He, is, uh, he has a comedy show that's been running for, man, decades now out in, out in Las Vegas. He had this really interesting YouTube video uh, a few years ago. It's been several years ago now. And he basically sits down in front of his computer at the end of one of his shows at night, and he looks down at his little uh, screen camera right there, and he just tells the story. He tells the story about a guy who came up to him after his uh, routine that night. Usually they're out there handing out autographs and doing different things. And this guy came up to him and handed him a Gideon's New Testament with the Psalms, little Bible. And he said, look, this guy knows that I'm an atheist. It's part of his whole routine. He lets that be known. This guy knows who I am. He knows what I think about religion, about God. And he came up to me and he shared his faith with me. And listen to what he says. I don't respect people who don't share their faith. If you believe that there is a heaven or a hell or that people could be going to hell or not get eternal life and you think it's not really worth worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And he he admits, he says, and atheists 
think people shouldn't proselytize. They think that people should keep religion to himself. But what he's saying is that if you are convinced that God is real and that there will be an eternal judgment, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share your beliefs with them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Okay. Jesus looks at his disciples when he sends them out and he says, the world will reject you. People out there will hate the message that you are bringing to them. Even in the way that we do it as as caring and as loving and as patient as possible, people will absolutely reject the message of the gospel. But you have to know that that does not mean that you are failing at what you're called to do. Because Jesus gives this promise. And the whole scripture gives this promise that God is the one who saves That it is not about any carefully worded gospel presentation or something that you do or the way that you present that is going to convert someone or bring them to faith in Jesus. God is the one who saves. And so for you, as you think about what it might look like to move out into the world and face this rejection, what we have to consider, what you and I have to consider is, how do I lovingly take this to the people around me? With urgency, yes, because if I actually do love people, then I have to talk to them about this. Now, we don't want to add offense to the gospel, but the gospel message itself will be offensive. Because here's the first step. The first step of believing in Jesus is acknowledging that I am screwed up and sinful and rebellious and that my life is Basically a train wreck apart from God. Some of you know that. You you know that acutely because it's your story. Others of you, your sin is more deceptive and it's quieter and it's the self-righteousness and it's the judgmentalism and it's the selfishness and it's that stuff that, that most people don't see but is in there. And to believe the gospel fundamentally means that you have to own that. You can't make excuse for it. You look before the God of the world and say, here's who I am. This is what I'm bringing to the table. And God, you have every reason to judge me. You have every reason to want nothing to do with me. I have run far from you. But the second half of the gospel is this, that Jesus came to save sinners. He came not for good people. He came to save and love failures. And so, friends, when you take that message out of the world, you will be rejected. But take heart, they rejected Jesus too, and they rejected His disciples too. You will be persecuted for your faith. Get ready, is what Jesus is saying. Thirdly, we see another kind of rejection here. We see rejection from the powers that be, from those who are up there, from the institutions. In our culture, that would be the media, the finance department, the government, the university, 
in general, not this university necessarily, but university, education, the institutional powers in this world will hate you because they hated Jesus and His message. In verses 14 through 29, we can't go into a ton of detail about this John the Baptist thing, but it's fascinating because what happens is John the Baptist was sent by God to basically make a way for Jesus. And he came preaching this message of saying, get ready. And he said also, repent, turn around from going that way and move toward God and said, the Messiah is coming. The one who's going to make all things right, he is here. And people rejected him, and some people believed, and that message was for everyone. It was for the people out in the desert, and apparently it made its way into the high court, into the royalty. Herod knew John. And John comes to Herod and is like, Hey, buddy, um, you're, you can't get married to your brother's wife, right? Like, that's not cool. That's not lawful. You can't do that. You need to repent. And that made Herodias, the the brother's wife, who's now Herod's wife also, it made her furious. And Herod has this weird interaction there because he kind of respects John. He sees that John is a holy and righteous man. And so he says that he didn't want to put him to death, but his wife did, and so he's caught here in the limbo. And then there's this great feast where presumably Herod is probably very drunk. That would not have been uncommon for that type of feast Herod, so let's just assume, I may be wrong, it's okay. Herod's drunk, his his stepdaughter comes in and does an erotic dance. That's what she's doing for her stepdad. It pleases him, and he says, I'll give you whatever you want. Up to half of everything I have is yours. She looks at mom and says, what do you want? I want John the Baptist dead. I want John the Baptist dead. Okay. Interestingly, look at that. It says that Herod, for fear of the oaths, because of the oaths that he had made and because of his guests, you think Herod had approval issues? You think Herod was enslaved to what people thought about him? He went against his conscience and murdered a man because of what the people at the dinner thought about him. John the Baptist is killed by the royalty because they could. Herodias wanted him dead. He was dead. An executioner went and took his head off. What about us? How does that in any way in the world relate to us? When I was growing up, when I was in youth group, um, and you would come to pastors in the Bible, and we would talk about being persecuted for believing in Jesus, everything that followed after that was just like hypothetical. Well, I know in America, you know, we're not really that persecuted. So we kind of like make up a scenario where it kind of was persecution and can make us feel better about ourselves. Um, But, y'all, that was like 10 and 15 years ago. And we live in a different world right now. Absolutely a different ballgame. And you know this and I know this. If you seek to live a life of following Jesus and submitting yourself to the Bible and living biblically, you will be made fun of, you will be called a bigot, you will be marginalized, you will be hated, you will be excluded, you will be everything. If you move out into the world with the Bible's picture of sexuality and what we do with our bodies and who we do that with, of money, of how we use our money, 
of the sanctity of life. If you move out into the world as a Christian with these things, mark my words, if you haven't felt it yet, you will be persecuted. You will be rejected. And friends, this is nothing new. It's new for us in this country, but it has been this way for all times and places for those who follow Jesus. And it's because of these things, the fear of being rejected by those closest to us, the fear of being rejected by just people out there and those we may not even know yet, the fear of being uh, rejected at an institutional and at a powerful level leads us to really, quite honestly, be paralyzed about following Jesus. Because to do that is going to mean you will face rejection. And let's go all the way back to the beginning. When you have decided that what people think about you is the most important thing in your life, and you are living for the approval of everyone around you, then it is going to be hard to live your life for Jesus. And I would suggest this is why many of you feel like your faith is so peripheral and tangential to the way that you live and like it doesn't matter. And this is why you feel so apathetic. It's because given the choice functionally, you will choose pleasing someone rather than following Jesus. And I get that. It is hard. You may be looking at me saying, yeah, but but Brent, you did it. You gave up your career to be a pastor. I know. You're right. I did. Why for the last three days have I been terrified about standing in front of you saying this very thing? Because I, I struggle to believe the gospel. I struggle to accept the identity and the security and the the offer of home that Jesus has given me. I struggle to believe that, and I know that you do too. So what has the power to overcome that? What has the power to overcome the fear of being rejected for the name of Jesus? The only thing that has the power to overcome it is Jesus is Jesus Himself and what He is offering you in the Gospel. So let's just say it one more time. What is He offering me? What is so good about what He is doing that He's saying it will fundamentally change the way you move out into the world and will make you be willing to be ridiculed for My sake? What could be that good? He's offering you home. He's offering you hope. He's offering you acceptance. He's offering you joy that does not fade based on your circumstances. He is offering you approval that is aside from what you accomplish or how much you screw up. He looks at you and says, I don't care what you have done. I have already taken care of that on the cross and I experienced the full rejection from God the Father so that you would never have to. So that when you die, that is the beginning of the rest of your life. And you have nothing to be afraid of. 
Friends, Jesus is offering you hope for today and a promise for everlasting life and future and beauty and joy and acceptance. And everything that your heart longs for right now, He is offering now. And if He doesn't give it to you now, He is promising He will give it to you forever. And when that makes its way down into your heart and when the gospel becomes more true of you, you will change bit by bit. Slowly but surely, God will conform you to the image of His Son and you will be rejected. But He says, count it as joy when you suffer rejection for My name. Will you be rejected for Jesus' sake? And yes, it will cost you now, but the payout is forever. Let's pray together.